Self-driving cars and trucks are big news right now, but did you know the concept of automated road vehicles stretches back to the 1930s? Welcome to the IFE podcast series. In this distinguished visitor lecture, we'll hear from University of California, Berkeley's Dr. Stephen Schladever, who's been researching road vehicle automation for more than 40 years. Dr. Schladever looks at the history and current state of automated vehicle technology and explains why it will be a lot harder to replace human drivers than most people might think. This lecture was given on Friday 29 September at QUT's Gardens Point campus. We hope you enjoy it. I'm going to start by talking about some of the historical development of automation because in order to understand where we're going we have to understand where we've come from and you may not realize how much history there has been on that. And then I'll talk about the different levels of automation. One of the things that's a real problem in this field is that terms get tossed around that are really misleading and that cause the media and the general public to have a totally unrealistic perception of reality. So we have to make sure we have consistent language to describe what we're talking about. Then I'll get into the types of benefits we can expect to get from automation. And I'll talk about why it's really important to have cooperation, that is vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle cooperation and vehicle-to-infrastructure cooperation in order to get any benefits from the automation. Um, and then I'll go into what the impacts will be on travel and when we might expect to see some of these happening. Um, the projections I'm going to give you are much more conservative than anything you've probably seen in the media and I'm going to explain why these projections are so much more conservative and why this is going to take a whole lot longer than you probably expect it's going to take. So to begin with, a lot of you probably think Google started this whole idea of road vehicle automation. Uh, so I thought I really need to tell you there's a whole lot that happened before Google was even conceived. And this goes back all the way to 1939. I will show you a video from the 1939 World's Fair where the Futurama exhibit talked about a future of automation. A lot of developments going on with General Motors during the 1950s and 60s. A major research program at the Ohio State University in the from the 1964 to about 1980. Uh, work in Japan in the 1960s and 70s. Our program in California got going 30 years ago. And at the same time, a program called Prometheus got going in Europe, dealing with road vehicle automation. Uh, and many things have happened before we even got to the DARPA challenges. The faces there is a driver, but the driver's role has changed from what it is today. Self-driving is another one, and autonomous is another one that's used. Turns out it has four different usages. Only one of the meanings is the one that's in the dictionary, but the other three meanings get in the way of people understanding it. So whenever anybody uses the word autonomous, I have to ask follow-up questions. What do you actually mean? What's your interpretation of what autonomous means? So I try to avoid using it, if at all possible. If we're going to try to understand each other when we talk about these automation systems, there are three main things that we have to try to make sure we all understand similarly. What's the role of the driver and the role of the system? How much connectedness and cooperation is there among vehicles and between vehicles and the infrastructure? And what's the operational design domain? And I'll talk about that in just a minute because that's a sort of a new special term. Talk about definitions. We go to the Oxford English Dictionary. Automation is the use of electronic or mechanical devices to replace human labor. I think that's pretty much what we're talking about if we have a computer that's taking over the human driving functions. Has nothing to do with autonomy or autonomous. All those are about is self-governance and independence. Nothing to do with whether a system is doing the driving or a person is doing the driving. 
So we could have autonomous intelligent transportation systems, which are basically the unconnected ones. Uh, I heard somebody earlier this week refer to them as introverted. We could have cooperative intelligent transportation systems, which are connected and cooperative. And again, I heard somebody this week calling them extroverted. And then our automated driving systems could be either one or the other or some combination. But I moved that circle off to the right because I think they will really need to be cooperative. And I'll explain why in just a short while. Um, different levels of automation. So how much of that driving function is done by the person? How much is done by the system? Uh, the SAE in the U.S. has developed, devoted a lot of attention to trying to define this systematically. So we can categorize a system based on answers to a series of questions. The first is whether that driving automation system performs either longitudinal or lateral control of the vehicle. If it performs one but not the other, it's a level one automation system. So then the second question is if whether it performs both the longitudinal and the lateral vehicle motion control functions then it's at least a level two system, might be more than that. Then does it also perform object and event detection and response? That is looking around the driving environment, detecting any problems and responding so that it ensures the safety of the system. If it also does that, then it's at least a level three system. Then does it also perform the fallback or the fault management? So does it have enough levels of redundancy that it can actually uh, ensure safety even when bad things happen, whether there's a failure on board the vehicle or some adverse external event like a load falling off a truck or another driver doing a bad maneuver? If it does those things as well, then it's at least a level four automation system. And then finally, whether it can drive everywhere that people are capable of driving under the full range of speed, roadway, weather conditions that people can drive, or whether it's limited by an operational design domain. Only if it's able to do everything that human drivers can do would it be a level five system. If it's limited in any of these other ways, then it's level four. So this operational design domain is a really critical concept because it's the specific conditions under which a given driving automation system is designed to function. So again, it could be roadway, traffic, speed, uh, it could be geofenced, maybe only within a certain geographical location, weather and lighting conditions. Does it need cooperative infrastructure to work? Uh, does it depend on um, pavement markings and signage being in condition above a certain level? If it's limited by any of those things, then it can't be a level five system. It can only go up to level four. But any designer of a system needs to be very explicit about exactly what their operational design domain is. Under which conditions can the automation function? Under which conditions is it not able to function? And then when we get into the regulatory regime, we're really looking at requirements that the manufacturers must be able to prohibit the system from being engaged unless it knows it's within its operational design domain. If somebody could turn the system on under conditions in which it's not designed to operate, we're going to have a real serious safety problem. So adaptive cruise control or lane keeping systems would be level one automation. Uh, when we combine adaptive cruise control and lane keeping, uh, some of the commercially available systems right now, that would be level two automation. Um, level three system would be one that might let you read a book or work on your laptop or do something else, but be prepared to intervene when the system gets in trouble and calls for help. Um, and we have Audi is planning on introducing something that will do that under very limited conditions later this year. 
Level four is where the driver might actually be able to go to sleep temporarily if you were out on the highway and the system was able to operate on the highway. Or this might also be where you could have a closed campus shuttle that would operate at low speeds within a very confined area. Doesn't need a driver to do anything. Level five is where you'd have the automated taxi that can take you everywhere you want to go or that could reposition a shared use vehicle from one user to the next. Uh, that's something that's very, very far in the future. So what type of benefits should we expect to gain from use of the automation? The automation is not an end in itself. It's a tool to help us solve transportation problems. And certainly in the work that we began 30 years ago at the PATH program, the first one was alleviating congestion. We can't afford to build a lot more roadway infrastructure. How can we get more traffic through the system on the same infrastructure? And how can we smooth out the dynamics of the traffic flow? If we can do those things, we can also reduce energy use and emissions. Uh, part of that is by smoothing the traffic flow, but part of it is also by aerodynamic drafting when we get the vehicles driving closer together. And I listed safety last. Uh, we could potentially reduce and mitigate crashes. That's often listed first, but I put it last because I think it's by far the most difficult one to achieve and the one that's most uncertain. And I think most of what you read in the general media that claims these vehicles are going to eliminate so many crashes is really nonsense because at this point nobody even knows how to prove that. Uh, and so, and we'll get into that much more. In order to be able to get to these benefits, though, the vehicles do need to be connected. Um, when I look at the U.S. statistics, typical highway capacity under the best conditions is about 2,200 vehicles per hour per lane. That's based on limitations in people's ability to follow other drivers, one behind the other, and limited lane keeping ability. If you took an aerial photograph of a highway that was operating at that maximum capacity, you'd discover that only about 5% of the road surface is occupied by the vehicles. The other 95% of the road surface is all the spaces in between the vehicles. So when you're operating at that maximum throughput, you've got about 10 car lengths between vehicles front to back. And even a large SUV is only about half of a lane width. So you're only occupying 5% of the road surface. If you could get that up to 10% or 15%, now you could have a really major impact on the throughput of the infrastructure. Um, the type of stop and go disturbances that we get, which we know as shock waves in traffic, are caused by driver's response delays. Well, if we have a system that can respond more quickly, get around those response delays, we can reduce or maybe even eliminate those shock waves. So with vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle cooperation, we can get to shorter gaps, we can get vehicles responding more quickly to disturbances in traffic, and we can have more consistent responses of all the vehicles. So they travel consistently rather than mixing, say, aggressive and non-aggressive. Uh, with infrastructure-to-vehicle cooperation, we can actually set the appropriate target speeds for traffic in a particular section of highway in order to maximize the achievable throughput. So all of that helps us get better transportation performance. When we're traveling vehicles at highway speeds, about half of the energy is used to overcome aerodynamic drag. Uh, it's much less at lower speeds. And we've done experiments in our program and other researchers in Europe and Asia have done similar experiments showing that with close formation platoon driving, we can save 10 to 20% of the total energy usage when we're driving at highway speeds. That turns into big money, especially if you're driving a heavy truck. The accelerate and decelerate cycles also waste energy and again, if we can get better traffic flow dynamics, smoother traffic flow, we can eliminate that energy waste and we can eliminate those additional pollution um, inputs. But 
that critically depends on vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle cooperation, and I'll show you experimental results that uh, support that. Safety. Um, in the U.S. traffic safety statistics, something like 94% of the crashes are caused by some form of driver behavior problem, several different types of driver behavior problems, and some in combination with environmental disturbances like adverse weather or bad road conditions. So automation can get rid of all those driver behavior problems if the automation is doing the driving instead of the driver. And if we have well-chosen sensor and communication technologies, they should not be vulnerable to weather condition problems. But, and it's a really big but, when we look at the current traffic safety statistics, we in the U.S. are running 3.4 million vehicle hours of driving between fatal crashes. Such a big number, I had to convert it to years. 390 years of 24-7 nonstop driving in between fatal crashes. If we look at injury crashes, the number is about seven years of 24-7 continuous driving. Now, I have yet to hear anybody say they'd be willing to accept an automated vehicle that was less safe than an average driver today. Well, in order for it to be equally safe, you've got to have a system that can run those numbers of hours continuously without a serious error. Try to imagine that with your mobile phone or your laptop computer or your tablet. How often do you get an hourglass symbol or a spinning blue donut that says it's not ready to give you the answer or a blank screen or a blue screen of death or any of those things? Uh, if that computer was driving your car, you literally died. The blue screen of death is not just a figure of speech. So this is setting a really high bar. By the way, I looked at the Australian traffic statistics. You're something like close to 50% safer than we are in the U.S. So multiply those numbers by one and a half and then add an additional factor for societal acceptance of uh, robots killing people rather than people killing people. Why do we need cooperation? Um, cooperation is, provides a really important source of additional information to help an automation system work better. The autonomous vehicles, and here I'm using the word in the strict sense of the vehicles that are independent and self-sufficient and don't get any information or cooperation from other vehicles, are deaf-mute drivers. They can't talk to other vehicles. They can't listen to what other vehicles are trying to tell them. All they have is their ability to perceive the environment. Um, but if we've got the cooperation, now we have the opportunity to exchange messages and to get much finer resolution data, much richer data, and much faster data about what the other vehicles around us are doing. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the performance of the system and the safety of the system. There are some types of performance and vehicle functions that are only achievable with vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle cooperation, and I've listed some of these here. Um, things like automatic merging coordination or cooperative adaptive cruise control or close formation vehicle platooning. And with vehicle infrastructure cooperation, we can get speed harmonization to get all the vehicles trying to travel at the same speed on a segment of roadway instead of all trying. So what kind of impacts might we have on travel at these different levels of automation? Uh, level zero automation, by the way, means no change in the normal driving task, but you could have things like automatic emergency braking. You could have collision warnings to the driver, so the driver is getting benefit of safety information or intermittent assistance, but the basic driving task is not changing. This is where I think we're going to see the main safety advantages. Because this is where the vigilance of the sensors on the vehicle is combined with the vigilance of the driver, so you get the benefits of the safety of both of them. Uh, 
by only automating one of the functions, the driver still has to be fully engaged in the driving task and is doing the rest of the driving and must be paying attention. Uh, this is already widely available on production vehicles. You can get it even in mid-range vehicles. Level two automation, now where you've got the automatic steering control combined with the automatic speed controls, probably something that only makes sense on limited access highways or motorways. And you get some increase in comfort and convenience of driving, but the driver still has to be continuously engaged in supervising the system, which means you can't go off and mess around on your tablet or uh, play with your phone. We might get a safety increase from this, but it depends entirely on whether drivers use the system the way it's supposed to. If the drivers misuse the system, there can be some bad problems, and I'll show you a couple of examples. So this is what's available now on Mercedes, Tesla, Infiniti, Volvo, and everybody who doesn't have one now will probably have one within the next year or two. That's coming into high-end cars across the market. Um, but unfortunately, drivers don't always do what they're... Uh, Mercedes S-Class has a torque sensor in the steering wheel because the driver's hands are supposed to stay on the steering wheel. So this owner taped the soda can to the steering wheel to trick the torque sensor into thinking his hands were on the wheel, even though they weren't. So he's using the car in a mode that the designers did not intend it to be used on because he probably wants to go off and do something else with his tablet or his phone or whatever. So that's not a good thing. But it's not as bad as the second... YouTube video, which is from an Infinity system with a different driver who's out there on the motorway. This one doesn't have the torque sensor in the steering wheel. This doesn't have any way of trying to ensure that the driver remains engaged. And this idiot got out of the driver's seat. There's not even the soda can needed. Um, but he got out of the driver's seat, climbed into the back seat of the car. And this car is now driving down the public autobahn. I think this was in Austria. Uh, it's basically an unguided missile. If anything went wrong on that car, or it got into a section where the road markings weren't good, or some other driver did a maneuver that it wasn't prepared to respond to, you got a really serious crash. And there are other people who have done similar things with these level two automation systems, where they're basically trying to trick the system and use it in a manner that's totally contrary to what the manufacturer intended. So that's a way in which automation could actually degrade safety and could degrade it seriously. Level three automation is a very controversial one. This is now where the driver can disengage and do something else temporarily, but has to be prepared to intervene when the system gets into a condition it can't handle. Some of the manufacturers say they don't think this can be done safely. They're not even gonna try to do it. Some other manufacturers are gonna try to do it. Um, and Audi is planning to introduce one later this year that would be limited to something like 50 kilometers per hour in traffic jams on motorways. And so it would only be engaged under those kind of conditions. And the reason for that is if it gets in trouble and the driver doesn't intervene to take over, it can still fall back to just slow the vehicle down and stop it. If you tried going to higher speeds, you'd run into the risk of creating rear end secondary crashes because you're not normally expecting a car to just put the brakes on when you're in high speed on a motorway. So as I said, other manufacturers don't want to touch this. Uh, level four automation is now where you, under certain conditions, and those conditions may vary dramatically from one system to another, you don't need a driver. So it'll only be in certain places. Some systems might only work on motorways. Other systems might only be in very low speed urban districts. And it, whichever one it is, you get a big increase in comfort and convenience because now you don't have to perform the driving task as long as those particular conditions are satisfied. Um, 
you should have a safety improvement because by definition, the system has to include the fallback capabilities to recover from any faults it is going to experience. And I'm gonna guess somewhere in the 2020 to 2025 timeframe, we might start seeing some of those for use on motorways. Um, and as far as I can tell, every major vehicle manufacturer is working on that because think of the comfort and convenience if you could actually tune out a driving and do something else, or if you had a really long haul trip and you could go in and sleep in the back of the car because the car had enough safety built in that it could accommodate that. It's only gonna be able to do it on certain roads under the right kind of conditions, however. So, but there are some earlier opportunities if we go to more specialized applications. And think of things like buses on their own transit ways. You might have a narrow right of way, you could get the bus to operate automatically and provide a rail-like quality of service for much lower cost than a rail system. Or heavy trucks on dedicated truck lanes. And I've been learning about the, uh, the truck trains here in Australia, you know, there's potential uh, applications for that. Um, valet parking and specially equipped garages. Uh, if the car just parks itself within a garage, you could park the cars really close together because you don't have to worry about opening the doors to let people in and out. So where land is expensive, you could squeeze more cars into a parking area. And then driverless shuttles that operate within campuses or pedestrian zones, providing a very low speed service, maybe first mile, last mile access to major transit facilities. That's an opportunity that should be possible. But the big challenge right now is how tightly do you have to constrain the operational design domain to ensure the system can be done safely. So some of these are gonna be coming fairly soon. This is an example from La Rochelle in France where there was a field test a couple of years ago with one of those small shuttle vehicles, but it required a lot of infrastructure modifications, special tram-like traffic signals where the vehicle had to cross the path of other vehicles, special signs to warn the drivers of other vehicles that there was something unusual here, it wasn't a normal situation. And I'll show a short video that I recorded when I was there. So you see, this vehicle is limited to seven kilometers per hour. It's operating in a pedestrian zone. There is an onboard operator and he needs to be prepared to intervene when it gets into situations that it can't handle. Every time I've had a ride on one of these or similar vehicles, the operators had to intervene multiple times. Here it's crossing traffic, notice the flashing red lights to alert the other vehicle drivers that they need to stop to let this vehicle go through. Um, I know there are a number of field trials of similar category of vehicles going on in different parts of Australia right now that uh, a variety of uh, government agencies are very interested in. It's happening in many countries in the U.S. and several places. Level five is when you get to full automation. That's the electronic taxi that takes you wherever you want to go. And I just, in that point, uh, there's no disutility to travel time because you can do whatever you want while you're traveling. So it might lead to large increases in travel. But this is going to take many decades before it becomes reality, despite what you see in the media. Um, uh, my personal introduction, uh, uh, estimates are market introductions when these things might become available. So the green things exist already. Here we go, the level one through level five and the different types of categories of operational design domain. Uh, I point out that level four automation has been operating in many airports around the world for 40 years now. You ride vehicles that operate under full automatic control when you go from one terminal to another but they're on an enclosed protected guideway where there are no threats from other vehicles, from pedestrians, from bikes, from animals, from any other kind of disturbances. 
It's when you start trying to operate in less restricted environments that it gets more difficult. Uh, so like a limited access highway is not as complicated and I'm guessing we're gonna see more things at that level. The campus or pedestrian zone is another one where you can constrain the environment so it becomes possible to get to some of these higher levels of automation. I'm guessing in the early 2020s, then these light brown ones would be the, the later 2020s, the darker brown, the 2030s, but to get to level five, it can go everywhere. I'd say 2075 maybe. And maybe it's 2065, maybe it's 2100, it's not for a very, very long time. Now, that's not what you've been led to believe by what you see on the internet or in the media. And I'll tell you, I've presented this chart in front of many, many audiences all around the world. And many audiences, including people who are deeply involved in developing automated vehicles at automobile companies. Virtually everybody that I have presented to says they agree with this. Now, you may hear statements from the corporate CEOs and the marketing people that claim this is going to happen in 2020 or 2021 or sometime like that. It's rubbish. Because, because the people who are doing the development work inside those companies know that this is what's going to happen. And the marketing people are all trying to enhance the images of their companies and make it look like they're the most advanced. Uh, in fact, I was even talking to somebody from Mercedes at a conference last month when I showed this chart, and about the, um, the 2075, he said, yeah, maybe never. So uh, the people who really do the intensive development work on this understand how hard it is and why this is not going to happen tomorrow. This chart is about market introduction. When do you first see it become used? But then you have to recognize there's a lot of inertia in the vehicle market. How long does it take for new systems to work their way through the market? This is an example from the US where there's a mandate for seatbelts on new cars. Well, it took six years for 90% of the new cars to be equipped with seatbelts. It took 22 years for 90% of the vehicles on the road to be equipped with seatbelts and all the seats. And this last curve was the actual usage of seatbelts. So even though the system is equipped on the vehicle, doesn't mean people are going to use it. So here we. And this is where the government says you have to do it. It's not just voluntary. Now, for things that are more voluntary, this is a historical curve. This represents a 35-year horizontal scale for the adoption of automatic transmission, power steering, air conditioning, disc brakes, all things that we kind of take for granted on vehicles right now. But when they were introduced, they were only on the most expensive vehicles, and they were options. It takes multiple decades for those to become standard on new vehicles. This is just new vehicles. This is not the fleet as a whole. So after this, you have to think about the fleet turnover. How long does it take for the old vehicles to be retired and replaced by new vehicles? The main point of this is going to take many, many decades before this becomes widespread. Uh, I've read a lot of horror stories about truck drivers are going to become unemployed in a few years. And I always tell them, every truck driver who has a job today will be able to retire from their truck driving job. They are not going to lose their jobs because of automation. This is going to take a long time to work its way through the fleet. So why is this so hard? Uh, and why are my predictions so much more conservative than most of what you've been reading on the internet or in the media? Well, there are a lot of things that the system has to be able to handle. Uh, failures by other vehicles, illegal moves by other drivers, uh, loads falling off trucks, what happens when you're in a lightning storm and your electronics don't work right. 
But even worse is, what about all the new crashes that are caused by the automation not working correctly? We hear lots of stories about the 94% of today's crashes that are going to go away because of automation, but nobody wants to talk about all the new crashes that happen because the system encountered a circumstance that the designer could not anticipate. The driving environment is highly stochastic. There are all sorts of random events that happen. You cannot expect the designer is going to be able to anticipate them all. There are going to be software bugs. You cannot test your way through every possible branch of the software that's going to be driving automated vehicles. They're just simply too high a level of complexity. Um, there'll be undiagnosed faults occurring in the vehicle. And you could have really catastrophic faults like loss of electrical power on the vehicle. If it happens today, you've still got manual backups that the driver can exercise. If there's no driver in the car, or if the driver's asleep in the back seat, they can't take over when you have the catastrophic failure. We have a very software intensive system and there is no technology available today to verify or validate the safety of software of this level of complexity over the full range of operating conditions. People have done software verification and validation on toy problems, but not on problems within orders of magnitude of the complexity of this. We're going to need redundancy on some of the key components that are safety critical, but those are electromechanical things that don't follow Moore's law, so they're not going to become dirt cheap. They're still going to cost a significant amount of money. And we're operating in quite a challenging environment with many sources of threats, just listed examples of dynamic external hazards that you're going to encounter in traffic. We don't have to read through the details, but also environmental conditions that can vary widely. This is where things like the operational design domain constraints come into play because maybe you've got a system that will work in fair weather, but if you get rain beyond a certain rate of fall or you get snow, it won't work. So the system can't be operated under all those conditions. Then we have all the internal faults in the vehicle. How do we ensure the functional safety of the vehicle? Some of these, I think, are solvable within current technology with a lot of hard work by a lot of people but the ones on the lower part of the chart require fundamental breakthroughs. Um, this is why I tell new students who are coming in at Berkeley, if you want to work on this, you'll be able to spend your entire career trying to solve all the problems that need to be solved. So you have to be able to work uh, lots of time on these. Things like system design errors, system specification errors, or software coding bugs. Nobody knows how to eliminate those things. You're never going to get to perfect. But to get to the point that you exceed the 390 years between fatal events is immensely challenging. Now, of course, society may not accept that. It may need it to be twice as good or five times as good as 10 times as good. That discussion hasn't really been held yet, but that's something that does need to be uh, done at the societal level to say how safe is safe enough that we'd be willing to tolerate those crashes. Um, we had a couple of Tesla drivers who died within the last couple of years because they misused the system and they misused the system because they were misled by the manufacturer into thinking that it had more capability than it did. But what if one of those crashes had killed an innocent bystander? I bet there would have been a much bigger backlash than there was when it just killed the guy who misused the system. We can't prove the safety of software for safety critical applications and indeed I'm not aware of any case in which people have approved the use of software to make life or death decisions. In this domain, software is making life or death decisions. What do we have to do to get to the point that we can trust the software enough that we're willing to have it make life or death decisions? 
You cannot test your way to safety. Uh, the Rand Corporation published a report a little over a year ago calculating how many hours of testing you would have to go through in order to be able to prove with statistical significance that you were significantly safer than normal driving, and the numbers are just astronomical. Uh, and then think of how many hours of continuous and unassisted automated driving have people actually achieved under real conditions. We're starting to get a little bit of evidence of that from recent testing because the companies that do testing on the road in California need to report every year their safety-related disengagements. That is the cases in which the test driver had to take over control of the vehicle from the automation. Um, Waymo, which is the former Google, is far ahead of the others in their numbers. Um, but there's a big asterisk next to their report because they don't actually report the disengagements. They report what would have happened if the driver had not disengaged after they play it through a simulation. So their test drivers are taught to be very cautious and risk averse. If anything is just slightly not right, the test driver takes over. But what they do is they take all the sensor data and play it through a very detailed simulation to predict what would have happened if the driver had not intervened. And that shows about 5,000 miles between safety critical events in last year's testing. Well, if we look at the traffic safety statistics in the U.S., we have 2 million miles between injury crashes and 100 million miles between fatal crashes. It's still quite a leap from 5,000 to those much larger numbers. By the way, other manufacturers are down at the level sometimes 2 or 3 miles or 100 miles. Uh, I don't think anybody was within an order of magnitude of their 5,000 miles. So what type of breakthroughs do we need to get there? Um, I'd say, first of all, software safety methodologies, the design, the verification, validation methods, so that we can overcome the problems with the existing methods that are available today but are simply impractical to use for something of this complexity. A lot needs to be done in the threat assessment, sensing, and the signal processing. Taking the combination of sensors, whatever video, radar, LIDAR, and all of them together, they detect what's going on in the environment. How do they discriminate between an object that is totally benign and that you can run right through and an object that's dangerous and therefore you need to either brake or swerve to avoid it? And unfortunately, some dangerous things are really hard to see and some benign things are really conspicuous. So this is a very challenging sensor signal processing problem to be able to get to the point that you have zero false negatives, that is you don't fail to detect something dangerous and near zero false positives, which means it's very rare for your vehicle to slam on the brakes for something that's inconsequential. We also need some very robust false detection, identification, and accommodation, and you have to be able to do it within about a tenth of a second. If you're driving on the motorway at 30 meters per second, you traveled three meters in a tenth of a second. You can get in a lot of trouble if in moving three meters. We need attention to ethical decision-making for robotics. What kind of ethical values need to be embedded in the development of that software so that that software is making decisions that will be societally acceptable? And we need cybersecurity protection. I mean, we need that on vehicles today already, but when you've got vehicles that are not being driven by people, you don't have the driver as a fallback to be able to recover from the consequences of an attack. Uh, I think I already talked about the threat assessment challenge, but think of a deep pothole or a brick in the tire track as examples of things that are really dangerous, but they're really hard to see when you're approaching them at speed. But on the other hand, you might have a paper bag in the road or a metalized balloon in front of you that's a nice, big, conspicuous target, 
but what does it matter if you run over it? People always talk about, well, we've got aircraft that are flying under autopilot, so why can't we do this? That's, that's harder. No, 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 no. That's orders of magnitude simpler than this. And if you're an aircraft flying at 30,000 feet, at most you might need to be worried about one other aircraft that's somewhere within your airspace. If you're driving uh, in downtown area, you've probably got dozens of targets you have to keep track of between the other vehicles and the pedestrians and the bicyclists. Um, how accurately do you need to know the location and the speed of all of those other target objects? You need to know them a whole lot more accurately on the ground because they're a whole lot closer to you than if you were in the air. And if you've got an emergency, if you're at 30,000 feet, you've got tens of seconds to recover without getting in trouble. If you're down on the ground, you've probably got a tenth of a second for your system to decide what to do and to take corrective action. And you've got to do it at a price that people can afford to put in a consumer product, not a multi-million dollar flight control system, but something that's probably thousands of dollars for a road vehicle. So these are all reasons why this is going to take a long time to get to those higher levels of automation. So given all of those negatives, what, what should we do right now? I'd say, first of all, we can focus on the connected vehicle capabilities, the ability to do vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure communication so that the vehicles and the roadway infrastructure can function as a well-integrated system. I think to get to the public benefits for the higher levels of automation, we want to focus on the public transit vehicles and the heavy trucks. Um, these are vehicles that are used many, many hours per day, unlike private personal cars, which might only be used one hour a day or two hours a day. So any economic benefit from use of the automation is going to be uh, received <coughs> much more quickly because of the much greater utilization. You've got professional drivers who can be trained to work around the limitations of the technology and professional maintenance to try to ensure everything is kept in good condition. Where we have managed lanes or lanes that are segregated for special purposes, that's now a good way of getting the equipped vehicles coexisting with each other and segregating them from the rest of the traffic because many of the threats are associated with the bad behaviors of the drivers of the other vehicles or the bad behaviors of the bicyclists or the pedestrians who are doing stupid things around the vehicles. And then lots of attention to develop those enabling technologies to be able to get to the higher levels of automation because that's going to be decades of fundamental research. As, uh, as I heard a Silicon Valley uh, expert mention in a meeting last year, there's a lot of basic science that has to be done before we even get to the solving the engineering problems. So there's plenty of work to be done there uh, involving a lot of people all around the world and then hopefully after some more decades we'll be able to get to, to enjoy the benefits of those higher levels of automation. And with that, I thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.